Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Welcome to this edition of Bring It On. We're a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening. I'm Roberta Radovich. Chloe Anthony Wolford Morrison, known lovingly as Tony Morrison, was an award-winning American novelist, essayist, editor, teacher, and Professor Emerita at Princeton University. Her internationally celebrated work has earned her many distinctions, including the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993. Among her best-known novels are The Bluest Eye, Song of Solomon, Beloved, and A Mercy. She was one of the rare American authors whose books were both critical and commercially successful. Her novels appeared regularly on the New York Times bestseller list. They were featured multiple times on Oprah Winfrey's television book club and were the subject of a myriad critical studies. A longtime faculty member at Princeton, Ms. Morrison lectured widely and was seen often on television. Today, we pay homage to Toni Morrison and to help us fully appreciate the depth and breadth of her craft, contributions, and legacy, we have invited longtime Bloomingtonians, the doctors John and Audrey McCluskey. Both are well-respected scholars, writers, and former acquaintances of Miss Morrison. John and Audrey, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure Great to, to have here. you both here today. Thank you. And now we will hear a selection from Audrey McCluskey. In August 1619, the first documented Africans arrived on this shore. August 2019, we lost a chronicle of the work, victimization agency of those descendants of those Africans 400 years ago. The majesty of her work and her voice was in this rendering of the complex and compelling lives of people like the ones I grew up with. People who did not limp, whine, or beg for acceptance, who just lived their lives to the fullest in all its beauty, pain, and truth. How did she know and reveal the complex inner lives of those people and did not reduce them to the good or bad Negro? I think it was because Tony loved black people fiercely, their history, their struggles, their triumphs, their trials and burdens. That truth is voiced by Baby Suggs, the spirit-filled, unchurched matriarch of her masterwork, Beloved, published in 1984. And to show that, I want to read a passage from Baby Suggs's sermon at the clearing, and this is a sermon she's speaking to recently emancipated or former slaves who have now have the first taste of freedom, but it's not an uncomplex freedom. And this is her sermon 
to them. Here, she said, in this place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in grass. Love it, love it hard. Yonder, out yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder, they flay it. Oh, my people, they do not love your hands. They, those, only use them to tie and bind and chop them off and leave them empty. Love your hands. Love them. Raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them. Pat them together. Stroke them on your face. Because they don't love that either. You got to love it. You. You will see it broken and break it again. What you say out there and what they say, do not heed. What they scream from, do not hear. No, they don't love your mouth. You got to love it. This is flesh I'm talking about here. Flesh that needs to be loved. Feet that needs to rest and dance. Backs that need support. Shoulders that need arms, strong arms, I'm telling you. Oh, my people. Oh, my people. So love your neck. Put a hand on it. Grace it and stroke it. Hold it up. And all your inside parts. They don't they just as soon see it slop over. The dark, dark liver. Love it. Love it. And the beat of beating heart. Love that too. More than eyes or feet. More than lungs that have yet to draw free air. More than your life-holding womb. And your life-giving private parts. Hear me now. Love your heart. For this is the prize. It was wonderful. And that reading was from the beloved novel by Toni Morrison, uh, spoken as Baby Suggs delivered his sermon uh, to a still stunned, shocked, post-traumatic, stressed out African people who now were granted freedom and uh, had to take the bold, courageous steps to move forward in their freedom. Uh, can, can you share with me, both of you, some of your fond memories recalling your first encounters with the work of Toni Morrison? I can talk about uh, when I first met Toni personally. Um, it was somewhat after reading uh, Blue's Die. This was uh, the summer of 1971. The book came out in 1970. And I was working with a group in Cleveland called the New Day Press. And these were a gathering of citizens, teachers, wanted uh, some alternative readings for, for their students in the public schools. And somehow they got a large grant. I don't know, I'm forgetting, that's hazy now. And they were able to bring in a number of editors from New York, uh, a couple of them who wrote children's literature. And Morrison was sort of the star, and, and she came in, um, gave a lecture, and there was reception for her afterwards. She came in with her sister, and uh, I recall that you know, everybody talked with her, gathered around her, and I recall that we, when we met, um, we interchanged some small things. I said I had a review of her book uh, uh, written, and I'd be happy to show her. Uh, but then I asked her, how's Pecola? And she stopped and gave me one of those, how did you know, looks. And then she loosened up, and she said, Pecola has two kids now. 
And uh, she, uh, later on, we began to talk about that, and I said, Pecola could also be male. And the little town I grew up in, in southern Ohio, uh, we had people on the outliers, and these were people who didn't get invited to our play during recess, uh, the guys who fumbled the ball in football games. Uh, it may have been a deformity that they had, but it was always that person on the outside. So even though the issue here is primarily color, uh, and this woman, young woman who asked Tony one day uh, that she prayed for blue eyes, uh, the fact is that Tony's giving us a, metaphor, a reality and a metaphor to talk about the world when we sort of distance ourselves from certain people who look a certain way. And uh, I later you know, sent her a copy of a novel which, which she liked and then when it was published and I'd be happy to talk about the editing a little bit later. But uh, that was that summer of 1971. 1971. I want to go back to the passage that you wrote, uh, that you read for us, Professor. Um, in your tribute, you noted that it was the the matriarch, the unchurched baby Suggs, who or that um, provided that sermon. Why does it matter that she was the matriarch, and why does it matter that she was unchurched? Well, I also said that Tony was a paragon of truth and wisdom. And I don't want to, she was also very human, very human. I mean, she could laugh at a joke, you know, so I don't want to just, but, but she was so wise and smart. And there's a difference, I think, in being wise and smart. And you see that in her language, the way in which she humanizes people. And so when I we talk about Baby Suggs and her being earned church, she was a woman, first of all, and she wouldn't be ordained in very many churches at all, particularly at that time, and even perhaps in some places now. So I think that was an important part of her because she brought a collective identity and not just one that was compartmentalized according to a particular kind of denomination. But the thing that distinguished Baby Suggs was her heart. Her heart was pure and loving, and that's what was emphasized. And even at her death, she wanted color in her life. She kept asking for color. And so Baby Suggs is just one of those prototypical women and people that perhaps we know some people who are, have parts of themselves like Baby Suggs, but Tony was able to masterfully put it all together. And when I think about um, 1984, that time period, of course I can't help but think about uh, an Audrey McCluskey on fire for wanting to educate and write and and help the world in the way that Audrey is imagined for Audrey. How, thinking about her impact on your own journey, what did those words mean for you? Oh, I tell you, I tell you, uh, reading The Bluest Eye when I was a very, very young woman, it was transformative. I'd never read anything like that. I'd never seen anything like that. And I recognized so many people in it. I recognized myself. I recognized my neighbors. I recognized my friends. And it was just, I had to put it down and go back to it. And Tony always said that she wanted to write something that she wanted to read. And she knew this. We all knew these things were happening in our community. But it was like an open secret. We didn't want to talk about it. In fact, when it first came out, some people really criticized her. Why are you putting all that out there, you know? Mm. <laughs> but this book is not only, it's, it's about race primarily, but the way in which it was 
really embraced by people in all kinds of different cultures because every group has insiders and outsiders. Every group has people who are shunned. And so when Oprah brought her on her show, she she had actually a, a, a gathering of white women, black women, and they talked about this book, but in the context of their own lives. And so that's what was very important to me. It was just transformative. Mm -hmm. Tony was fond of the ancestor, and she once said that uh, one marker for fiction, particularly African-American fiction, is what you do with the ancestor. And the ancestor is not someone sitting in a corner mutely or just spouting wisdom. The ancestor takes an active role in the life of the community. And so she said, I could read every book that's been done. And so I watched the ancestor who's being, who's being, being uh, provided there. And Baby Suggs fits that uh, uh, quite easily. But if you go to Pilot, for example, on Song of Solomon, it's the same thing. So she, she has this, uh, this notion of embracing tradition, but it's articulate tradition. It's not a mute tradition at all. And it's not a re- resigned tradition. So that's uh, a key thing in, in her work. Her sense of place is also admirable. Um, it, it, I, I was toying with the idea of reading the first paragraph of Sula because she, um, she gives you a paragraph that sets you in a small town. Most of her places are small towns, not the big cities. And she takes you from the, the hairdresser's parlor to the barbershop to the pool hall. But then she gives you colors, and then she gives you smells, and all of a sudden you're in that village and that's what she always says she writes for. She writes for the village, not for anybody outside. So um, there are a lot of admirable things that she added, uh, that she was able to bring into her uh, sort of quiver, with arrows quiver, um, to make her stories uh, lasting. And they, they will last. Mm-hmm. And what was her impact on your own writing career? Um, Tony took the first book, took the draft of it, and she went through it, and she said, um, well, this is going to be, a, a, for me, sometimes a different kind of thing. I'm not going to hold your wrist and, and go through each line because I like what's there. What I want you to look at are the transitions from chapter to chapter, from scene to scene, but I also want you to do something that I had never heard before. And she said, a novel is a 360-degree globe. And it's not flat on the page. You've got to walk under it. You've got to walk around it, walk around it again. But it's got to be something that's, that's uh, solid out there in the world. And so I took that to, to heart in terms of dealing with minor characters who show face here, not to just laugh with, but to bring them on here that they have another side to them. And I guess that global or that um, sort of uh, circular sense that Tony was uh, after, that was what uh, I try to do with with uh, longer works, but also the short works too, short stories as, as well. Uh, uh, Tony was also freeing. She, as Audrey mentioned, Tony didn't have things simply in black and white because that's too easy. She didn't have victims. Again, that's too easy. She wanted people who had fire. She wanted people to find heroism in the small things. Uh, she wanted to to do these things, but also be very political. And she was political in a very very sly way. Uh, people praise the lyricism of her work. I mean, you have to read her stuff aloud. And she says, no, 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 that's not enough. That's not enough, because you want to skip the political. And she said, the, 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 uh, it, you can be lyrical and political at the very, very same time. You can write pretty, you can dance pretty, but you also have to realize that something in terms of power is at work in, in, uh, in my fiction. 
And so she would straighten up critics in a minute. They said, okay, we applaud you. She said, oh, that's not enough. You're getting away. You're getting away. <laughs> Look at what I'm trying to say. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and she did that very well. And you should mention that the name of that book that she edited, your first novel, you should mention it in case someone wants to read it. <laughs> uh, look what they've done to my song. I'm, I'm very bad at uh, titles. And uh, I, I found a letter from Tony uh, just last week saying, well, maybe we should stick to the one that I suggested. I said, well, you know, uh, and, but we stayed with it. Look what they've done to my song. Um, it could have been something She suggested that title. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I want to read a quote. Uh, to you both, and I'm going to get your reaction. Uh, and this is from uh, Toni Morrison. When I began, there was just one thing that I wanted to write about, which was the true devastation of ra- racism, racism on the most vulnerable, the most helpless unit in the society, a black female and a child. So whoever wants to start. Yeah, I think she did it, but she didn't do it like heads on, like these are victims, and I want you to see how much a victim they are. Mm-hmm. She gave those victims agency for the most part, you know. In other words, she talked to them like you and I would talk to each other. She wasn't speaking to, in other words, sometimes she was compared to a protest, the protest tradition, mm-hmm. which Richard Wright and Baldwin came out of. And she was actually criticized because she didn't take that mantle of the white man did this to me. <laughs> and some people criticized, some white critics criticized her because of that. She wanted to see the humanity of the people. And although she addressed their victimization, she did it without making them totally just victims. And so I think that is the difference. She talks about the helplessness and all that, but the people that you read about, that she wrote about, you respected them as individuals, even in all their flaws and all their pain. I would only add to that that quote of hers that I would also include old folks as being vulnerable. And I think that the, the marker of any culture is how they treat the helpless ones at both age ends. Um, and um, so that would be the only thing I would add to it. But uh, she did it in a way that she wasn't preaching, she wasn't sermonizing, but she had you in the palm of her hand by the, by the time you get to the first end of the first page. Is that what her, her universal appeal is, is the ability to talk about the least of these in a way that humanizes them? I'm thinking about, you brought my attention to the foreigners, Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the trailer for that mm-hmm. documentary. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that film she, and what she's doing with that that is consistent with what we would see in her writing? Yeah, she she um, she didn't pity, pity uh, the individuals. I mean, she they were they were people who may have been warped, uh, deformed in some way by the pressures of society. But she she never. Um, wanted you to say, well, they're so beaten down, there's no hope. And so she was able to keep uh, faith and hope alive um, through, through her characters. And I think that uh, uh, that worked very, very well in all of everything that she did. Mm-hmm. And she also, going back to the idea that um, who she's writing for and how critics first took her work and compared them to Richard Wright and others, and her first book, Bluest Eye, was actually banned by some school district because they said it was just too explosive. And so this was her comment when uh, they asked her about it. She says, uh, you know, she was writing out of the mainstream. And she said, well, I'm going to stay out here on the margins and let the center look for me 
And I just thought that was wonderful. I mean, she's not, she's writing to satisfy herself, first of all, and the critics, you know, be damned. <laughs> mm-hmm. she, she had a hard time, um, as many writers do, uh, they say, define Afro-American literature. And they say, well, it's the way, this is a dialect. And she said, no, that's just dropping the G's at the end of the, the words. She said, it's, it's, uh, it's a literature written by black people. I said, oh, that's not enough either, because, you know, black people can write about anything they want to write about. Uh, so it's, it, it's about black people. And she said, no, that's too easy also. And so they say, well, what is it then? She says, well, it's that thing out there that I'm searching for with every book, but I know it's there. And I think what she was trying to get at was what's in the music. Because the musicians, I mean, they, they have, they're their own critics, the, the, the toughest critics. And there's something about it, you don't hear a song and say it's a black song. But there's something about the loneliest monk and Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane that sweeps in and embraces a, a culture. And I think that was what she was after with words. And whether she said near the end that she had done it, uh, the, the interview that I saw said, no, I'm still reaching for it that ineffable effable, uh, uh, blackness, but it is there. And she has a novel called Jazz, which is one of the kind of purest attempts that is, is actually in, out front. Mm-hmm. And, but she does, does that because music, as always, has been one of the highlights of African-American culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I like to read as a, a moment in her life that we're all familiar with, but Uh, This is from the Swedish Nobel Academy. Mm He said, in choosing Mm -hmm. Morrison, the Swedish Nobel Academy singled out the way she delves into the language itself, a language she she wants to liberate from the fetters of race. And in an interview with The Observer, Morrison said of the honor, I felt representative. I felt American. I felt Ohioan. I felt Mm -hmm. blacker than ever. (laughs) I felt more woman than ever. (laughs) Your reflections on that? (laughs) <laughs> That's a lot there. <laughs> um, that, that means she she felt whole. Mm-hmm. That means that she been able to integrate all of this into oneself. Uh, it doesn't mean that she has to short shorten her femininity or her color or nationhood to, to be there. Mm-hmm. And I think this it's uh, a goal for 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 many of us is to be whole and to bring all those parts uh, together. Uh, and, and not to say this outdoes this one, this part of me outdoes this piece, this part is over here. Uh, the, 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 I think the real point of trying, and, and part, part of the flaws of the work that she shows in the character and society is what prevents people from being whole, pre- prevents people from integrating uh, these various pieces of themselves and bringing and making music, a whole music. Um, you know, one thing that I'm uh, really amazed at is, you know, you spent personal time with her. Uh-huh. Uh, you dined with her. Uh-huh. Uh, you've interacted with her. And there's a sort of uh, interesting story, uh, Audrey, that where you talked about your first meeting with her. And can you share that with our listeners? Yes. Uh, as John had said, uh, she was his first editor. And we were on a trip to New York. She was an editor at uh, Random House. And we had three young boys in the car with this. And so we didn't want to take them inside Random House, that towering building. And so I said, I will just stay in the car with the boys while John would go up and and chat with uh, Tony about the novel. But 
I looked up and here was Tony coming to meet me <laughs> in the car <laughs> and greet our little feisty boys. And, you know, it just, uh, she just, how are you doing? And she was just so very, very pleasant. And that was, that was the first time. Yeah. <laughs> and from there, there, there were other meetings and interactions with her through the years. Um, and I guess letters were exchanged too. Letters were exchanged. Uh, let, let me comment on, on this one because it, it, it leads right from what Audrey just mentioned. Um, Tony was uh, a patent lecturer in 1983 here on mm -hmm. campus. And she spoke first in Wittenberg and it was packed and they had to close the doors because of the fire marshals thing. Um, but she wouldn't, I said, oh, no, no, she, she's like a prima donna here. She wouldn't let them tape it. That's never been done before. You always tape the panel. So I said, oh, no, we're going to lose this whole thing. Um, so, we, so they agreed, no taping of that one. We taped the videotape the, the, you know, the, the next day. Um, uh, but that tape was, was eventually uh, lost. But on, on the morning that we had students, allowed students to meet with her, and have coffee and, and pastries. They all gathered at my office, and I said, well, what, why are you here? The star is upstairs, no, downstairs, at the Women's Faculty Lounge and Memorial. And they said, what did I say? What did I say? What did I do? What did I do? It's Toni Morrison. I don't know. I'm nervous. <laughs> and I said, look, think of her. She's from Ohio, first of all, so she's, she's relatively grounded, right? Okay, think of her as your favorite auntie <laughs> who's fond of telling stories. They said, okay, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. So I went downstairs. <laughs> and after about 10 minutes, I tiptoed down to see what was up. And they were just laughing, having a ball. Tony was just telling jokes and everything. <laughs> they had a great time. So she has this, if, if you meet her, if you met her, you would see that she could be like, like, like standoffish when she needs to be. Mm -hmm. But once you got to know her, she, was, she loved to laugh. And she loved, to, she loved people. I think that's really interesting that you say that about her personhood because I find that with her text too. Uh -huh. I, I think the beauty of her lyricism draws you into something that is otherwise potentially very intimidating yeah. at mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. um, and I must also add to that that she complimented me on the salmon that I made for dinner that <laughs> night. Well, <laughs> all right. You heard it first. Here, I'll bring it on. <laughs> Um, and after we have dinner with the McCluskeys this evening, uh, we'll talk more about At your <laughs> expense, yes. <laughs> oh, Thank I, 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 I was trying to get some, some salmon at the McCluskey home. <laughs> um, but one of the things that, that I remember is that a lot of her works were then adapted for uh, small screen and big screen. So mm -hmm. let's talk about some of the movies that were adapted mm -hmm. from her writings. Well, I can talk about Beloved because uh, I think that's her masterwork. I mean, I love all of, all of her works, but... Mm -hmm. Beloved is just so complex, and I think it is the best novel written about slavery, full stop. However, it is complex. Mm -hmm. So I tried to teach it to undergrads a couple of times, and I ended up, you know, I had to just explain everything because she moves. She doesn't move chronologically. I mean, she moves. And, and so I had to explain all of that, and it, it just got to be so much of a chore that I said, okay, class, let's, th there's just been a movie that Oprah Winfrey is behind. It's the beloved, and it's playing. Let's just, as a class, let's go see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that go? They didn't, they didn't really <laughs> get the movie either. And, you know, the movie was, you know, so-so. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I had to give up, actually, teaching beloved, which I really hated to do because it was just, it was so much for the students and it was so much work for me in terms of explaining it and the cliff notes wouldn't do it. So <laughs> I can attest to as being a, a baby 
a baby undergraduate many years ago, I think I bumped into that novel four times, and each time it gave me nightmares. Yeah, I yeah. really yeah. had a hard time with that novel every well, time. we don't want to scare our audience away from reading. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So, but, but what I would advise is that you, you – st- start with uh, uh, The Bluest Eye and just go through her. She has 11 novels. And by the time you get to Beloved, I mean, you'll be swinging. (laughs) One at a time. Yeah, Yeah. one at a time. I I was going to ask you, do you want to talk about, for our listeners who might, this might be really their first introduction to Toni Morrison, Mm -hmm. how the books work together? Or do they? Well, Mm -hmm. well, if I can ask if we can hold off, because we're coming up on a music break and just 90 seconds, and I don't want to interrupt you mm-hmm. when you begin that, but um, carrying on that thought about some of the complexity in her writing, you did mention earlier that she envisioned a globe mm-hmm. um, of sorts, and, mm-hmm. and so everything's not linear. I mean, it's, no. it's, it's sort of like portals and time dimensional, whatever, but in other words, you have to, she transports the reader. Uh-huh. And she has that uh, abil- She had the ability to grab the attention early, uh-huh. which was so important, to take them on this journey. Yeah, and, and and that's an extension of her personality. The first time I met her, and the last time I saw her, it was in 2016. She has this voice that's very um, quiet. It's assured, mm-hmm. and you have to lean forward to hear it, even if you had a mic. But she has a way of of bringing the reader and the listener mm. toward her. And she's not. She never shouts. I've, I've never heard her shout. Uh, I never even had her last birthday in 2016. She, she was in a wheelchair, uh, but she again had a mic that she could project. But there's this softness in the voice. But if you, but as you put it, uh, Roberta, very well, that can turn in her fiction. So all of a sudden, there's something lyrical and nice. All of a sudden, there's bloodshed. There, there's there's defeat. There's something. And so it, it, it catches you by surprise, but uh, what rings with me is her voice mm-hmm. that's still here. And I think that's extension, extended in her, her writing. All right, we're going to put a, a, just a, a pen in this conversation right now and mm-hmm. just take a music break. And we'll be back on the other side to continue this very wonderful conversation uh, on Toni Morrison, her life, her contributions, and her legacy. And, of course, we're, we're favored this evening to have Drs. John and Audrey McCloskey with us who we claim as our own longtime Bloomingtonians, uh, well-respected academicians, writers, researchers, former acquaintances. I'm so happy to say our friends. And you are listening to Bring It On. Thank you. It's a blessing to see peace. Love. It's beautiful, 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 beautiful. Me 
ships are sinking Many stars are falling down And I count it as a blessing That you hold me up now oh. I can tell that you've been praying My whole life has turned around Yeah, yeah And I can't go without saying That I thank God for you all now yeah, For you, I Put my in the air for you I see what you're doing and I see what you go through Put my lighter in the air, the truth is you're beautiful Beautiful, beautiful. Now put your lighter in the air for us Everybody singing together, sing a new song Put your lighter in the air for love And you just heard Beautiful by Molly Music. His name is Courtney Jamal Pollard, and he performs on this under the stage name Molly Music. And he is an American recording artist, uh, singer, songwriter, and producer. In 2011, he was the first inspirational artist to be a part of BET's acclaimed Music Matters series. Signed to RCA Records in 2013, Molly released the single Beautiful in, in anticipation of his first major album release, Molly Is which was released on June 17, 2014, and it earned him a Grammy nomination for Best Urban Contemporary Album. You'll now hear a selection from Professor John McCluskey, Jr. I'm going to read from uh, The Bluest Eye, and um, it's a section, as you may remember, where she divides the book in four parts by the seasons. In this particular one, Pauline is the mother of Pacola, um, who is the, I guess we could say, victim in some ways throughout the whole novel. Um, what struck me about this is the f way in which it's all narrative, there's description, but there's a line in here that hits like a laser. And the line is, um, I'll read it, uh, but the line comes two-thirds of the way through the book. And so there's several questions you can say, well, with a line like that, where do you go? Down the line. Uh, uh, but but it's, it's said in such a way from the narrator that Pauline couldn't have thought it, Pacola couldn't have thought it, so there's this narrator, narrator out there who's looking back on the lives, and she brings this whole thing that we've seen together about color and love uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and being a young woman. One winter, Pauline discovered she was pregnant. 
When she told Charlie, the husband, he surprised her by being pleased. He began to drink less and come home more often. They eased back into a relationship more like the early days of their marriage when he asked if she were tired or wanted him to bring her something from the store. In this state of ease, Pauline stopped doing day work and returned to her own house, to her own housekeeping, excuse me. But the loneliness in those two rooms had not gone away. When the winter sun hit the peeling green paint of the kitchen chairs, when the smoked hocks were boiling in the pot, when all she could hear was the truck delivering furniture downstairs, she thought about back home, about how she had been all alone most of the time then too, but that this lonesomeness was different. Then she stopped staring at the green chairs at the delivery truck. She went to the movies instead. There in the dark, her memory was refreshed and she succumbed to her earlier dreams. Along with the idea of romantic love, she was introduced to another, physical beauty. Probably the most destructive ideas in the history of human thought. Both originated in envy, thrived in insecurity, and ended in disillusion. In equating physical beauty with virtue, she stripped her mind, bound it, and collected self-contempt by the heap. She forgot lust and simple caring for. She regarded love as possessive mating and romance as the goal of the spirit. Now, you bring together um, physical beauty, uh, you bring together goodness, and you bring together the possibility of love. Now, one line, that's powerful stuff. <laughs> that's the stuff of, of uh, people try to have with movies and, and, and commercials and, and songs and all that. And she is saying that it's dangerous to bring those three together. Mm -hmm. Beautiful writing. Well, you know, as she wrote books for Random House, um, who could edit her? <laughs> Good question. I mean, I mean who, who would, did, did they draw straws and say, okay, it's your turn, <laughs> I, I'm not gonna touch it. But, but who would dare say, oh, we need you to flush this character out more. I mean, but who, who's gonna dare uh, critique her? She, she gave the name of the editor uh, that, that she had and she, she admired him greatly. And they did not argue much about uh, 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 anything, but he, he could put his finger on something and she would honor at least thinking about it. Uh, I asked her once, what did she leave out of this very tight book? It was about 150 pages as a blue aside. And she said, uh, next to nothing, except she had a scene where Pakola was going to run out into the snow and she was going to contrast the snow falling on her dark skin. And then she said, uh, somebody told her maybe, this overkill. You don't need that in this particular book. You said you mm -hmm. said that already mm -hmm. in another way. Mm -hmm. uh, but to ask a question, that's a good one. To my head. Who, who who would be next in line to try to edit her stuff? <laughs> well, we, we started right before the break. Uh, Roberta had a question. Well, there was a conversation that had, had ensued about uh, the the complexity of her writing, and and we all recognize it, uh, and we marveled at it. But we also began to talk about all of her works and the connectedness between these works and where, and the layers of the complexity that she incorporated in each one. So I had asked you to begin to con sort of uh, decipher that and we have before us a list of her works and so Dr. either Dr. McCluskey, uh, if you will begin that conversation, I appreciate it. Well, we certainly think that uh, you need to take Tony as she took herself, that is, in the progression of her writing. Mm -hmm. The Bluest Eye, I would advise, would be the first book. I mean, everybody could read this. Um, 
it could be, I think everybody should read it, actually. <laughs> if it were on my required reading list, it would cer- certainly be that. Above uh, To Kill a Markingbird, actually, which I think is in the 100 lit, uh, best books. And then in the progression of Sula and Song of Solomon and Tar Baby and Beloved. And uh, the others, I mean, I, I feel very strongly about all of her works, but I would advise to anyone who wants to read her fiction to read them in that kind of almost chronological order. I, I would agree. Uh, it's, um, uh, Roberta, you mentioned Coltrane. Could you stop at the, at the start of the middle? No, no, I don't think so. But, but, but she was a large, she had a large canvas, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, we could reduce it perhaps to the nature of love. The one I like uh, to do is, uh, was it Maya Angelou, who used to quote from the classics, um, I am a human being and nothing human is alien to me. So that you, the characters she has, they're open to everything. And that's beautiful. I mean, they, they close nothing down. I'm a human being and nothing human is, uh, human is alien or strange to me. So, so that would be the way I'd boil it down. And another theme that I think pops out in a lot of her writing, especially the, the early writing, is this word that I think she coined. It's called disremembered. Not forgetting, but disremembered. And if you think about um, the characters and you think about slavery, a lot of it has been disremembered. You know, it means it's a willful act. And so when you willfully not remember something, you're doing that for a political purpose. And she, and certainly our ignorance about enslavement is a part of that disremembering. And memory actually functions in a lot of her other works as well. So I think along with love and that physical beauty and, and those kinds of things, I think she would actually, I would think that would be one of the themes that comes out. Are her, particularly her women characters, are they coming as you progress through chronologically? Are her characters actively, willfully remembering? Mm. I don't know. I mean, each the, the women are so different. They are almost prototypical, but they are different. And I wouldn't uh, only to say I would say they would have they have agency and they have purpose, but they are flawed women. You know, Eva Peace, one of the women I love in Song of Solomon. You know, uh, and. Even even in the in uh, beloved, I mean the heroine. I don't think you would even call the heroine of the story. You know, she actually kills her baby. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not giving away much, but it's based on a true story of an enslaved woman who's trying to escape, and she's caught and cornered. She's pregnant, and she has a baby. And slavery was so horrible for her. She had been beaten, and she had been just treated so badly that she slits the throat of her baby, her two-year-old baby. And so is that an act of heroism? Is that an act of what is that? Because we think that that is one of the worst things that you can do, but she complicates it, mm-hmm. you know. How do we remember this woman named Mar- Mar- Margaret Garner? She was, uh, again, that's nothing, nothing human is alien to me. I mean, all, all right. the barriers are down. You know, you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, th- that story, um, she couldn't escape it. She did a book called The Black Book some some years ago, and The Black Book's just just like a collage. And you say, "What are you doing here?" Because she got it's like a quilt, mm-hmm. but you don't see the quilt. You know how you see in a museum, you you see a picture, and it's too close, and you step back and step back, and it comes into focus. 
Well, that's the way this book works. And you, you see um, a, a very thick experience here in the United States by looking at the parts. And she has this little paragraph on Margaret Garner, and she says she could not shake it. And that was the issue, I think, in the Cincinnati paper where this, 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 this account is made. And so finally she wrote the book, and then she later did an opera um, f from that. So there are things with, which trigger things in her mind from memory that, that she needed to remember to get the books done. But again, without, without saying, uh, without this generality, I, I have a difficult time just bringing it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. We can mm -hmm. uh, shift gears a little bit. She also wrote, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, librettos? Librettos. Mm -hmm. Librettos. Um, and if for our listeners, if you can define that <laughs> and talk about some of the work that she's done. Now, I did look it up for, for those listening. I, I did look it up. <laughs> but uh, the impact that I didn't have, I did not know. I did not know that she had her work extended into that field. But if we can explain for our listeners what that is and the impact she made in that area. He just referred to it in the opera that she she wrote. Yeah, I I, I didn't see the um, or hear the 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 piece, so I can't really s say it. But she was interested in a form, and she made friends with the person who was the um, uh, the, the, the musical person, musical director, mm -hmm. composer, composer. Yeah. So I didn't. I, I don't. I don't know the the opera itself. Okay. Yeah. And she was working on something on Emmett Till as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Oh, that'd be powerful. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, Maya Angelou. They were friends. Ever, they were friends. I just wondered the um, dynamic of that relationship. And boy, wouldn't you want to be a fly on the wall for them to really... Well, actually, John was. I mean, he, the photograph that he was trying to find to send to Roberta, he's in it, and uh, Angela Davis and Tony. Tony's in the wheelchair, and they're on either side of him. And that wow. was at her... Birthday, eighty fifth birthday, eighty fifth birthday. Yeah. So, yeah. and she edited Tony Mar uh, Tony Morrison edited Angela Davis's first book as well. Yeah, wow. But but getting back to Maya Angelou, uh, uh, an impact and a force all her own too. I mean, mm -hmm. is it? It's not fair to compare because no, uh, no. But what they both both bring to writing, and, yeah, and both can extract from people, the reader, yeah. And then what they can impart in the reader. Well, let me put another name on the table too. Uh, I, I think well, Tony—they all were aware of Tony, and they all liked Tony, so far as I know. Mm -hmm. um, but Paul Marshall is two years mm -hmm. older than two or three years older than Tony. Died within uh, a week or two of, to, mm -hmm. of Tony. Mm -hmm. a, a fantastic writer. Paul uh, her, Marshall. Her, her canvas was a little bit broader in terms of the Caribbean mm -hmm. and Brooklyn, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, but but she, I mean, you put those two in a room. I would love to hear that too. She also came to Bloomington mm. as a patent lecturer, and, and we also had her for dinner. You sounded like the hostess with the mostest. You know, you arrived. I, I stuck to my salmon recipe <laughs> <laughs> when you were invited to the McCluskey. <laughs> but how special! How special to be in a generation. Um, yeah. where the community maybe unfortunately was so small that the possibility of knowing each other was there, yeah. but still how precious it was to really be in community oh, yeah. with each other, um, you know, across across state lines. And yeah, and, and both of them were, were able and willing to create, uh, perhaps Tony more so in her position at Random House, to create another generation, a younger generation of people who are now brought together mm -hmm. and who now share some, some same things, share the same same freedom. 
Um, I mean, they both together were terrific, terrific writers. She didn't have the fear of competition. I mean, she wanted no. to really, she didn't want to be the only one. Mm-hmm. I mean, we hear that only one, I'm the first. She mm-hmm. didn't want to be that. She yeah. <laughs> she wanted to actually open it up for more talented African-American writers in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think she was very influential. In fact, there was a whole panel discussion on Tony as an editor uh, a couple years ago that John yeah. participated in. Yeah. And, and she, that, that panel was interesting in that um, uh, Paula Giddings, who's a historian, Quincy Troop, who's a poet, Angela Davis, and Tony had done three, all four, all four books. And she, um, she was like a, a mother figure here, and she took Angela's book, and she told Angela, now look now, what did it smell like? What was the color? What was in it? You've got to give some, some flavor here. She and Quincy argued about, because uh, the poem's already done, how to sequence them. Uh, which poem should be sent out by this guy from Nigeria or this, this, this woman from, from Chile or something of that nature. Um, and then I mentioned you know, my own thing, but the, the, advice, the sort of motherly advice she gave here was that um, when the book was published or before it was published, people were saying, John, give me a copy of the book. I'll review it. <laughs> uh, get, get, send me a free copy. Send, send a free copy to my buddy over here, and I'll write Tony. I said, Tony, you guys aren't moving fast enough here in New York. I got friends out here who look for, look for the book. And she heard enough of that. She said, let me tell you something. Your friends are the ones who buy the book. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no more freebies. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> okay. I'm back off. I'll back off. <laughs> but but she, was, um, she was gentle. I think, now other people may have different interpretations, but she was gentle with the younger generation. She wanted them to, to do their best work, mm-hmm. and, um, and she helped them do their best work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have about seven minutes left, and okay. time really does fly. I mean, this is a fascinating topic. Three things I'd like to address, I mean, at least. Um, mm-hmm. There may be more that we can squeeze in there. Mm-hmm. There's a story about Muhammad Ali, <laughs> a story about Muhammad Ali that, uh, that, that I'd like for you to share. And then also, I'd like to talk about the Toni Morrison Society, mm. and then Oprah Winfrey's influence on all this. Now, that's that one of all can take up more than seven minutes, but let, let's try to di- dive into those. Well, the Ali story is very quick. It's just another side to her editing, how creative she was. Uh, uh, Toni K. Bambara said, she, I cannot write a novel. And Toni said, give me 12 short stories with the same character. And she made a novel called The Salt Eaters by, by, by this person. The other example of how creative she was is the greatest, the book by Ali. Ali was fighting foreman, um, um, what was it, in Africa, right? And a man named Richard Durham had actually done all the writing of it. He's a journalist. And so Random House wanted the book to come out right after that fight, Zyger. which is a big gamble. Because if he loses, <laughs> you've got to change the ending. You've you got to change the ending. And so he won, and Durham called her, uh, Tony, from Africa with the last few pages of that book. And Tony had to digest what he had just told her and then style it the way he would write it. So the last few pages of The Greatest by Muhammad Ali was done by Toni Morrison, the novelist, <laughs> in you, New York City. Wow. <laughs> and then now wow. the um, Oprah Winfrey's influence. Well, before I came uh, today, I just re- looked at, again, reviewed a, 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 a story, at least a, an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show in which she had Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison appeared on her show many times and think four of her 
for Morrison's novels were Oprah's in Oprah's book club. And so this was one where she had Tony and four women who had read the book. They were white and black women who discussed the book itself. And one thing that that Tony said that had all the women just, and me too, when I heard her, she said that as parents, because she was again talking about Pacola and just not getting approval, she says, does your face light up when your child enters the room? We said, whoa, <laughs> you know, whoa, because she said herself, and I certainly am guilty, that when a child enters the room, you oftentimes are looking for flaws. You know, is your hair combed? <laughs> <laughs> Did you brush your teeth? Did you brush your teeth? <laughs> you know, and, and so your child sees that, and your child does not need to see that. Your child needs to see approval. So she said, and that's a simple sentence, a question. Does your eyes light up when your child enters the room? Whoa. (laughs) So Oprah had uh, a very good impact in terms of universalizing and bringing Tony to the masses. And understanding the impact of who Morrison was. With yes. with that yes. mass audience, yes, and knew o- that she was packing a punch with that, and people oh, yeah. trusted Oprah because you know they heard about this Tony, this black woman, you know. <laughs> but with with Oprah there as sort of a mediator, I mean, you know, it was just it was just magic, mm-hmm. and the way they sat around and talked, and that happened several times. So, so yeah, Oprah has to get her props for helping to spread the the gospel of Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and with about three minutes, uh, the. Tony Morrison Society. Uh, we, we all would be proud to know that that came from Bloomington. There's a graduate student who was here, uh, uh, Carolyn Denard, um, and she took a course with me one summer, and we read Sula. And I did not know, I mean, I know she liked the book. She wrote a very good paper for it, but it, the impact of that lasted for a long time. So some years later, she and Adrian uh, Seward, also a graduate student from Indiana, they got their heads together, invited uh, 20 scholars to, I forget where they, where they met, to initiate this particular society. Um, and the society is basically to encourage and inspire the study and conversation around the work of Toni Morrison. They are now put 20, over 20 benches by the road. And there's a quote, I, I don't have, we don't have time to read, um, where Toni said, we need some markers to show our history. We need trees. We, need st- we don't need statues necessarily, but something to mark it. And she, we didn't even have a bench by the road. And Carolyn heard that. And so now what they do every year is f- find a specific space or site to put a bench by the road of the Tony Morrison Society. So it's, it's, uh, it's based at Oberlin now, Oberlin College. Um, there's some issues they're working through, but I think on the whole they're, they're doing good work. Well, with that, um, let's have some closing reflections. Uh, we have about two minutes. so. If, if, if Toni Morrison were here at the table with us right now, hmm. what would she say? What would she say? Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> she, would, she would probably tell you to read her work. Yeah, you can't forget that. But wow. her, her compilation of her yeah. essays, I would advise, because that is so current. It's the source of self-regard. And self-regard is what, you know, image and mm-hmm. self-loving is about. But I would recommend that book. It's a compilation of her essays. 
and they are so contemporary. She has one uh, based on the film, uh, The Foreigner's Home, where she really talks about the alien and how we treat the alien. Mm -hmm. And so I think Tony will always be contemporary. She will always be in fashion. And she will always be have a message for all of us. I think she will say that language matters. Mm -hmm. That's all she would say. She says uh, what we say to one another, mm -hmm. what we write uh, every day, what comes out of the White House, what comes out of Congress, whatever. Language matters, and the language has to be. She tried to make it pure and precise. So, as the old folks say, say what you mean and mean what you say. Well, with 20 seconds left in this interview, uh, you spoke of the White House, and I'm so glad that uh, <laughs> President Barack Obama. Ah. Yes. Oh. Routinely uh, yes. recognized and invited her to the White House, and she just made the, uh, the White and House. And presented her with the highest medal mm -hmm. of freedom, and Presidential she, Medal of Freedom. And she loved that moment. She was very happy. Oh, yeah. You could see oh. her beaming. Oh, just oh, yeah. beaming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she loved Barack, and Barack loved her. Yeah. Mm. Well, for today's tribute to Toni Morrison, our sincere thanks to Drs. John and Audrey McCluskey, who are longtime Bloomingtonians, well-respected academicians, writers, researchers, and former acquaintances with Ms. Morrison. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we're sharing everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. And Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at wfhb.org. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone. With help from WFHB News Director Department, Kyrie Greenberg. Tonight's board engineer was Chantal LaFontaine, and our orig original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am Roberta Radovich. And I am Clarence Boone. Tune in next Monday, September the 16th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. <laughs> You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.